0: Welcome to Queer Crime, episode number two. I'm your host, Patrick. Queer Crime is the podcast that discusses crimes committed against, and committed by, LGBT plus people. The contents of this podcast are not intended to offend anyone within the LGBT community or beyond, They're simply a means to just tune out your loved ones for a while. As always, the content and the language within this podcast is intended for a mature audience and those with an open mind. If you have bigoted views, don't come for me in the comments section or leave one-star reviews. I don't care, hunties. It goes without saying that I'll always try to be respectful about the people involved in these stories, unless they're a homophobic arsehole. Homophobes need to understand that no one will respect them, their views or their lives until they learn to be respectful towards LGBT people and understand that the lives of LGBT people are just as individual, unique and complex as their own. So, again, with that rant over. Onto the story. Firstly, let me set some context when the story took place in terms of the gay High Holy calendar. It's 1995. The winner of the Best Musical at the Tonys was Sunset Boulevard. Furthermore, the incredible Glenn Close won Best Performance by a leading actress for her portrayal of Norma Desmond. The winner of Outstanding Drama Series at the Emmys was NYPD Blue I also want to give a shout-out to Candace Bergen as Murphy Brown because she won Outstanding Lead in a Comedy Series. And what gays of a certain age don't love a bit of Murphy Brown? Record of the Year at the Grammys was All I Want to Do by Sheryl Crow. Best Picture at the Oscars was Forrest Gump. And in 1995, LGBT alumnus Troy Sivan, singer-songwriter, actor and YouTuber, was born. And before I move on, I'd like to acknowledge my sources for the story, which includes Liverpool Echo, Murderpedia, BBC News and Reddit. Before I start, I want to apologise to the people from Wales. As an Irishman, my pronunciation of some of your towns is going to be woeful. So, North Wales is known for its rugged beauty. With the Irish Sea to the left and the north, this part of Wales packs a lot in. It has world heritage sites of Conwy and Caernarfon, which are beautiful walled towns with castles between the mountains and the sea. It boasts a national park with the highest peak in Wales and England called Snowdon. It is something for everyone. Golfers, adrenaline junkies, families, walkers, hikers, surfers, history buffs, open water swimmers, train enthusiasts, caravanners, campers, glampers and foodies. I'd be surprised if anyone was bored here except maybe clubbers. Today's story comes from this beautiful part of the world, but more specifically it's focused along the north of North Wales, from Hollyhead in Anglesey to Baggelt. A stretch of coastline that is in parts breathtaking, but holds a sinister past which is breathtaking for different reasons. During the 1970s, 1980s, and 1990s, this place of natural beauty had a simmering dark side which few people knew about, even the police. For a period of about 20 years, there was a string of unprovoked attacks on men by an unknown assailant. These attacks were as vicious as they were indiscriminate. The victims were both gay men and straight men. Gay men were attacked in public toilets or cottages, where they'd gone for some form of sexual encounter. Straight men were attacked as they drunkenly staggered home from the pub. Whatever the situation, the MO was always the same. The men were attacked from behind, struck with a weapon, knocked to the ground and then as they lay incapacitated, they were masturbated on or urinated on. Despite the frequency and similarity of attacks, they were largely unreported. Perhaps due to the fear of being outed as a gay man, or the fear that the stigma associated with being in a known cottage looking for a sexual encounter, or maybe a sense of embarrassment or humiliation for being attacked and not defending yourself. Either way, you have to remember that even though homosexuality was decriminalised in 1967, as I've said before, people's mindsets don't necessarily move in line with legislation. And new laws don't necessarily get rid of bigotry the public still had a long way to come before homosexuality would actually be understood and the public needed to understand that they shouldn't hate or discriminate against gay people. Furthermore, gay people had a long way to go before they felt accepted or felt like the law was on their side. So with that in mind, as these attacks happened through the late 1970s up to the 1990s, perhaps it was simply a case that gay people who were attacked didn't feel like they would be treated as a victim, but rather they'd be treated as a sideshow or a joke. Perhaps they didn't fully remember what had happened to them, as they were so drunk, or perhaps being knocked out affected their memory. In any case, these attacks left people in physical pain, with post-traumatic stress disorder, fear and feelings of isolation, as some of the gay men who were assaulted had a limited support network. Any attack that did get reported was primarily because they required hospital treatment, and the police were alerted to the victim's injuries. One victim was so badly injured during one of these attacks He ended up having to be wheelchair-banned for the rest of his life. But as these attacks were being reported so infrequently and sporadically, and they happened over a large period of time, the few attacks that were known to the police were not connected. Why would they? It simply appeared like drunk people getting into a fight, and they had no memory of what happened. Or perhaps it appeared like it was an attempted homosexual encounter that ended in the gay panic defence. Simply wasn't much to go on, so no one bothered looking into the attacks. However, as with all attacks of this nature, they become more frequent and they escalate in violence. And that is what happened over a four-month period between September and December 1995. September 1995 Henry Roberts was a 56-year-old retired railway worker who had a rather quiet life and did very little. He was known as the village eccentric who wouldn't hurt to fly. Despite being retired at a youngish age, it was reported that he was living in relative squalor. His main daily activity was walking from his isolated small cottage close to Hollyhead to his local pub. So every evening, irrespective of the weather, he would walk the one-mile trip to his local, where he'd get drunk before ricocheting home again at the end of the night. This habitual routine meant, like clockwork, Henry was an easily identifiable target. If someone wanted to attack him or even burgle his house, it could easily be done by any unscrupulous bastard. One night, after Henry got home from his usual trip to the pub, he was settling in before he heard a small racket on the road outside his house. He looked out and he could see a van parked up with the driver tinkering away under the bonnet, or under the hood for you non-UK based queer crimers. Henry decided to see if he could help and he started chatting to the driver who had appeared to have broken down. It turns out that Henry and the driver had similar interests, mainly Nazi memorabilia, Jesus, and they started chatting emphatically for a while about their shared interests. Eventually, the driver managed to resolve his engine problem, and he thanked Henry for his company. He promised to return in a couple of days with some bits and pieces from his Nazi memorabilia collection and show them to Henry. So, two days later, true to his word, the driver returned to Henry's cottage. Although this time, the visit was much later at night. The driver, being a total weirdo, was dressed in a Nazi uniform. When Henry opened the door, the driver immediately stabbed him in the stomach with a combat knife. As Henry fell to the ground, the driver continued to stab him a further 26 times and left him to bleed to death in the front garden of his small cottage. The driver calmly drove away. The following month, October 1995, Edward Carthy was a 28-year-old gay man who was known on the gay scene of Liverpool. As with most 20-somethings, he liked to go out, get drunk, get high, get laid. On the 19th of October 1995, Edward was at a gay nightclub called FACOs and he was drunk and he was on the prowl for someone who might take pity on him, as in he was hoping he could actually find someone to buy him more booze or drugs. He encountered a man who agreed to satisfy his needs if he returned home with him to his house. Edward agreed and they set off in the man's van to the man's home, but Edward soon fell asleep. When the van stopped and Edward awoke, he found himself deep inside a forest, and naturally he became apprehensive and got out of the van. He tried to run away, but in his drunken and drug stupor from his night of pubbing and clubbing, he was easily caught by the man. The man started stabbing Edward in the stomach, thighs and buttocks which meant he would die an agonisingly slow death. When Edward eventually succumbed to his injuries, the man buried him in the forest and drove away. Absolutely fucking chilling. The following month, November 1995, Keith Randalls was 49 years old and was employed as a security manager for a construction company that was contracted to build a new dual carriageway across Anglesey. His job as a security manager would have been difficult, large-scale construction projects such as this are often the targets for criminals who want to steal any of the building materials, tools or machinery. Of course, that type of crime actually happened and Keith decided it would be more appropriate to sleep in a caravan on site. Keith had popped to the nearest village to phone his wife and buy some chips before returning to the caravan. Keith was settled in for the evening and he dozed off to sleep. He was awoken soon after by a knock on the door. Keith answered the door and was immediately stabbed in the stomach by an unknown man. The man dragged Keith from the caravan, and when Keith asked him why he was doing this, the man answered, for fun. When Keith was found the following day, he had been stabbed a total of 49 times. The following month, December 1995. 40-year-old Tony Davis lived in Colway Bay with his wife and two children. Everything appeared quite good for Tony from the outside. He was close to his family and he appeared to be a good family man. On the 4th of December 1995, he told his family he was going to bring some food to his aunt who lived nearby and who was recuperating from a recent accident. After a few hours of Tony not coming home, his wife started to become concerned and phoned the police. Tony's car was found parked on the seafront near Colwyn Bay, which was a known cruising spot for gay men. And his body was found nearby on the beach with a total of six stab wounds. The police immediately launched an investigation, and next to Tony's body, they found traces of blood which weren't Tony's. The police had the killer's DNA. Peter Moore was born in September 1940 in Lancashire. He was six years old when he relocated with his parents to a distinguished large property called Darlington House, which was in Kinmel Bay in North Wales. Peter was an only child, and he was spoiled by his mother, Edith, Edith frequently referred to Peter as her miracle child, especially as she was originally told by doctors she would never be able to conceive any children. His focus, attention and love that he received from his mother made Peter feel unique and special, as did the expensive gifts that he received from her. The love from his mother was entirely reciprocated by Peter. They're each other's world. Yeah, because that's totally fucking normal. His family were popular with neighbours and well-liked within the community but Peter seemed incapable of making friends. Perhaps it was because Peter firmly believed what his mother had told him, that he was special and a miracle. Perhaps it was because living in a large, well-known house meant that he was better than other people who lived in smaller houses in the town. Perhaps it was the expensive luxury gifts that made him the envy of other children, who knows. Either way, Peter couldn't make friends as a child, nor could he keep them for very long, if anyone did show interest in him. He was a volatile, moody little fucker by all accounts. From an early age, Peter had an obsession with cinema, and he really wanted to make home movies. One of the expensive gifts that Peter received was a cine camera. When he received a cine camera, he set about making videos and documenting his family life. The primary focus of his home movies was his mother. She was the star. Peter would document as much of her as he could. Yeah, because again, that's totally normal. So whilst Peter was close to his mother, he didn't have the same relationship with his father. His father wanted him to be more manly. He suspected Peter might be homosexual, and it really troubled him. Conversely, Peter didn't like his father's hard drinking and his toxic masculinity, so they were never destined to be chums. Despite this dysfunctional setup, Peter continued to live with both of his parents until his father's death in the 1980s. By this point, Peter was in his 40s, and upon his father's death, He inherited the family business, which had been profitable enough to pay for his comfortable lifestyle, his lavish big house and his expensive gifts throughout his childhood. Peter used his inheritance and the profits from the family business to indulge his passion for cinema and he set about acquiring two small movie theatres in North Wales. His endeavours resulted in him creating a persona of being a respectable and successful businessman in the area who was intent on saving local jobs. He soon acquired two more cinemas and he used them to create movie clubs where parents could leave their kids for a few hours on a Saturday morning. He became known as Uncle Pete by some of the kids, and he was loving this newfound attention and his place in the community. However, Peter had a secret. He had craved a sense of power and control over men for the majority of his adult life. He had created an outlet for his sexual desires for control by dressing all in black, randomly attacking men, and then masturbating or urinating all over them as they lay on the ground. But this violent outlet could only satisfy so much. As with all cravings, they grow. But just as Peter's reputation and respectability was soaring in the community, his interests were sliding into a world that could never be shared with his local peers. Peter was becoming increasingly obsessed with sadomasochism and sadism. He enjoyed inflicting pain in other men. It brought him a sense of power. He also developed an interest in Nazi memorabilia. I mean, sadomasochism is fine, I'm not here to kink-shame anyone, but collecting Nazi memorabilia is unacceptable unless you're a fucking museum. In May 1994, Peter's world was rocked when his mother died. It is uncertain if he ever came out to his mum, but with her no longer in the picture, he started to indulge his sadism kink even further by hosting sadomasochistic parties at his large family home. Also, Without the watchful gaze of his only surviving family member, he could step up the frequency and severity of his random, unprovoked attacks on unsuspecting men. And he did just that. In September 1995, he stabbed 56-year-old Henry Roberts, 27 times outside his cottage, and left him to die in his front yard. In October 1995, he stabbed 28-year-old Edward Carthy, after they met in a nightclub and he buried him in a forest. In November 1995, he stabbed 49-year-old Keith Randalls, who was working as a security guard for a construction company. In December 1995, he stabbed 40-year-old Tony Davis on Penn Beach. From the outset of the murders, Peter enjoyed the attention the media was giving to these crimes, and he spent a lot of time reading newspaper articles about his wicked deeds. Even though people didn't know it was him, he was enjoying his handiwork from afar fucker. When the police were investigating the murder of Tony Davis in Pencerham Beach, it was getting good media attention and press coverage so members of the public were aware of this awful attack. Out of the blue, the police received an anonymous phone call which informed them that the caller was on the beach the same night that Tony was killed. The caller said he had seen a man there dressed all in black. But going solely on this information, Police made an appeal to the gay community who had been on Pensarn Beach that night trying to hook up for sex. As a result of this appeal, a second anonymous phone call was made to the police by someone who said that they had met a man dressed all in black on Pensarn Beach and that the man drove him to a large house in Kimmel Bay and that the man had attacked him when they were at his house. The caller said he felt lucky to be alive. The description and location of the house that the second anonymous caller gave made the detectives realise that this was Darlington House, the house that was owned by Peter Moore, the local and celebrated entrepreneur. They started following him, and one night when Peter was out driving, he picked up a man in his van, and the police used this as their opportunity to arrest him. At the police station, it was explained to Peter that he was being investigated for the murder of Tony Davis. To everyone's surprise, Peter admitted to it. The detectives were stunned. Could it be this easy? Well, apparently yes it was, because Peter went one step further and he gave them the full details of three other murders that he had committed. What on earth was going on? How could the detectives not have realised such a monster was on the loose or made a connection with similar crimes in the past four months? They knew about the murders of Henry Roberts, Keith Randalls and Tony Davis, but they weren't aware of a fourth murder, Peter explained to them what happened to Edward Carthy and he drew them a diagram to the spot in the forest where he buried Edward's body. Over the course of Peter's confession, he admitted to committing innumerable violent and sexual attacks over the previous twenty years. The detectives were flabbergasted, as were the media and the public. As the news stories broke and Peter was named in the press, he started delighting in the attention, but being the narcissistic fuckwit that he is, He made sure to write to journalists and give them accurate details of his earlier life, so there was no misrepresentation made about him. However, one former detective constable called Dave Morris, who originally arrested Peter, made sure that the journalists knew that he was a very dangerous man. He was also just a total weirdo. When the police entered Peter's childhood home after the murders, they found cuddly toys laid out alongside a Nazi flag and military uniforms and to add more evidentiary fuel to the fire, the DNA from the blood found beside Tony Davis's body in Pensarum Beach was found to be a match for Peter. During his court case, Peter was represented by solicitor Dylan Reese jones Facing four counts of murder and numerous sexual assault charges when his trial started 11 months later in November 1996, Prosecuting QC, Alex Carlyle called him the man in black, black thoughts and the blackest of deeds. But despite this, Peter, being an attention-seeking, spotlight-hungry twat, decided to plead not guilty. This would ensure that he got his trial and he would stay in the limelight for much longer. But how did he claim he wasn't guilty? He had already confessed. Well, now he was claiming that he was protecting a friend of his called Jason, who had committed the crimes. This lie would ensure that they would have to unpick this nonsense and give him more time in the limelight. Now, if you need any more proof that Peter was a total weirdo, he had actually named this fictitious friend after Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movie franchise. Nuts. Throughout his court appearances, Peter was belligerent, he was insolent, and he liked to give the impression that he was in control. At one point during the trial, he was being escorted from the courthouse to a waiting police van and he refused the standard offer of a blanket over the head, and he actually stopped to pose for the photographers who were waiting outside. Of course, Peter wasn't as clever as he thought, and on the 30th of November, 1996, he was found guilty of all counts by the jury, which meant he was found guilty of all murders, and additionally had been convicted of 39 sex attacks on men in North Wales and the Merseyside area over what the judge called a 20-year period of terror. The judge recommended that he serve four life sentences in prison. The Home Secretary recommended 12 years later that Peter should never be released. Peter went to Her Majesty's prison in Wakefield and he befriended Harold Shipman, who, if you don't know, was the former doctor who was a serial killer and was convicted of killing at least 15 patients, although the total number of his victims are approximately 250. I won't go into Harold Shipman here for two reasons. One, he was a total bastard and I'd be too upset to think about what he did. And two, it would take me about 13 hours to cover his crimes in sufficient detail and with the respect that his victims need. Back to Fuckhead Peter. On the 3rd of March 2011, it was reported that Peter was appealing and intending to challenge his whole life sentence to the European Court of Human Rights. Along with other prisoners who were being treated with the same fate, Ultimately, the goal of their appeal was to have similar whole-life sentences outlawed throughout Europe. Initially, this appeal was rejected, but they were given permission to appeal to the Court's Grand Chamber. In July 2013, 16 of the 17 judges ruled that whole-life sentences amounted to inhuman and degrading treatment, and that such sentences were not compatible with the European Convention on Human Rights. Essentially, this meant that Peter and similar inmates couldn't be in forever. This was with a caveat, though. This would not mean that people with whole-life sentences like Peter would be released any time in the near future. Finally, in February 2015, the European Court of Human Rights upheld the lawfulness of whole-life orders on the ground that they can actually be reviewed in exceptional circumstances. But despite this, Peter remains in prison, thank heavens. As a parting shot, the solicitor, Dylan Reese jones who defended Peter throughout his original court case said that Peter was the most manipulative person he had ever come across in his career. Peter even sent Dylan a Christmas card from prison. 25 years after the investigation, Dylan admitted it had taken a personal toll on him and it had caused him to have a breakdown about 10 years after the court case. Dylan said that the court case involving Peter was one of the deciding factors to stop practising law. He said that years after Peter was sentenced, Dylan would have dreams and images of walking down the street at night and being stabbed. He acknowledges, though, that his turmoil of having to represent an evil bastard in court and give up his career and have nightmares is nothing compared to what the victims and the families of the victims have been through. As part of the process to get over this ordeal, Dylan wrote a book called The Man in Black, Peter Moore, Wells' Worst Serial Killer. Peter, ever the crazy bastard who can't stop seeking some form of attention from the media, has made another attempt not to be forgotten. In September 2020, he said that he was considering legal action against Dylan because he wasn't happy with Dylan's book. Oh, give it a rest, Peter. How you're feeling about being portrayed in Dylan's book is irrelevant, you unimaginable bastard. Again, for all you wonderful queer crimers out there who want to read this book and fuck Peter off, Dylan's book is called The Man in Black, Peter Moore, Wales Serial Killer. It gets five stars on Amazon, check it out. The world has progressed so much since discrimination towards the LGBT plus community became illegal in many countries around the world. According to the United Nations, there are 195 countries in the world. Out of these 195 countries, it is still illegal to be a gay man in 72 of them, it's illegal to be a gay woman in 44 of them, and any same-sex activity in 11 of them could result in the death penalty. Imagine, in the year 2020. LGBT people around the world are not treated fairly or equally. Some people and leaders of countries are just dicks. We can't change that. But we can stand united and put them and their views in a minority. All people, irrespective of their sexual identity, can show solidarity towards LGBT plus people around the world. We've only got one life. Live it with sparkle. And don't hurt anyone. Please. Until next time.